my beloved brethren of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood, this is a special blessing to stand at this pulpit where prophets and apostles of God and righteous and capable men and women have for many decades taught and counseled the members of the Church. Tonight it is my humble desire to be a, a voice of encouragement to priesthood leaders, particularly to stake and ward councils, to increase their attention to the families in the Church who do not as yet have the blessing of the Melchizedek priesthood in their homes. These are families where the Father has not yet received the priesthood which is so necessary in blessing and guiding his family. For these families, the fullness of the gospel, particularly the blessings of the temple, await not only their own efforts but also the loving efforts of Church members who already understand what the temple ordinances mean to a family. As children, we were raised in a home where it was clearly understood that the priesthood was as essential to life as was the water we drank to satisfy our thirst. My mother had experienced in her own family the joy of her coming into the full activity of the Church and then as a family going to the Salt Lake Temple. At the age of 47 years, my grandfather Scholl had been brought into the priesthood with all of its attendant blessings. Upon the completion of a full-time mission, Mother sought a special priesthood blessing, asking that she might be directed to a worthy priesthood bearer who would not only be her husband but would also be a worthy priesthood father to her children. After that priesthood blessing, all of those righteous desires came into being for her and for us as a family in Southern Nevada. From the start, we were a family grounded in the priesthood and ordinances of the restored gospel, especially the sacred temple ordinances. This gave us as children a sense of being whole and complete, not only for our immediate family, but also with our mother and father's extended families. Early on, we learned of the healing power of priesthood as father, sometimes alone, and at other times assisted by men of the ward, exercised that priesthood in our home. In the 1930s, in that small Nevada pioneer town, there were no doctors. The nearest doctors were in Las Vegas or St. George. The first thought in times of accidents and sickness was to receive a blessing invoking that priesthood power. I remember Mother saying from time to time, We don't have doctors here in Bunkerville, but we have the priesthood to bless us, and that is enough. And mighty were the blessings which calmed and reassured both young and old. We were never powerless when the priesthood was there. I have always been grateful for that early awareness of the power of the priesthood of God in our home. Our homes today face unprecedented challenges that are tearing at the fabric of the family, they are that are taking away from the homes a sense of peace and confidence about the future. The evil forces parading immoral conduct, dishonesty, and enslavement through drugs seem to be strengthening. The moral issues and challenges will certainly not go away. 
We will also find that the temporal challenges with respect to everyday living will intensify. We all have become very aware that employment is no longer as secure as in former years as businesses and non-business institutions all around the world merge and consolidate in order to be more competitive. The family farm is increasingly exposed to worldwide markets and general economic conditions rather than just local or national conditions of earlier years. In virtually all pursuits, the rapidly changing conditions in the world are bearing down on families. They are causing a sense of uneasiness in parents and children. These conditions, coupled with the steady erosion of moral values, can best be dealt with in the family. This is achieved when the powers of righteousness are marshaled in the home under the worthy priesthood leadership of the father, equally yoked with a good and righteous mother. Indeed, in the February 11, 1999 letter to all members throughout the world, the First Presidency called upon fathers and mothers to devote their best efforts to the teaching and rearing of their children in gospel principles. Further, they counseled that the home is the basis of a righteous life and no other instrumentality can take the place or fulfill its essential functions. Where the priesthood foundations to cope with these challenges are in place in the family, as was the home of my youth, then we will not fear the eventual outcomes in future years. We may be bruised and worn, but the outcome will be of highest eternal worth. Families where the priesthood is honored and exercised will be able to endure the present pressures and become eternal families. And in the process, individual members of the families will have been perfected and prepared for the rewards of the faithful. There are in every ward and branch many families without the priesthood. In these families there are husbands and fathers who are simply waiting for a supportive invitation to become prepared to bear the Melchizedek priesthood. Their wives pray and wait for that outstretched hand. These are men who, through our teaching and nurturing, can be made capable to bear that priesthood. They can be fathers of revelation and guidance to their families. They can be fathers who give blessings to their own children, who baptize them and confirm them. Husband and wife will go to the temple, and they will take their children to the temple to be sealed together for time and all eternity. They will ordain their sons to the priesthood, and they will bless their sons and daughters in sickness and in health. Most of them are already good providers to their families in a temporal sense. They must now learn how to provide for their families in an eternal spiritual sense. There is a way for each ward through councils to reach out to all these men and women and their families and to open the roads to the temple for them. Who, how else will we or they receive exaltation or cope with the challenges that lie ahead? May I make an appeal to the bishops and branch presidents, to Melchizedek priesthood quorums, and to ward and branch councils to establish a high priority to reach out to these families in a prayerful, thoughtful way. Christ's Church will rise to its full stature 
when these families are brought safely under the mantle of the priesthood. Of him and of his great work I testify in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When Jesus walked and taught among men, he spoke in language easily understood. Whether he was journeying along the dusty way from Perea to Jerusalem, addressing the multitudes on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, or pausing beside Jacob's well in Samaria, he taught in parables. Jesus spoke frequently of having hearts that could know and feel, ears that were capable of hearing, and eyes that could truly see. One not so blessed with the gift of sight was the blind man who, in an effort to sustain himself, sat day in and day out at his usual place on the edge of a busy sidewalk in one of our large cities. In one hand, he held an old felt hat filled with pencils. With his other hand, he held out a tin cup. His simple appeal to the passerby was brief and to the point. It had a certain finality to it, almost a tone of despair. The message was contained on the small placard held about his neck by a string. It read, I am blind. Most did not stop to buy his pencils or to place a coin in the tin cup. They were too busy, too occupied by their own problems. That tin cup had never been filled or even half filled. Then one beautiful spring day, a man paused and with a marking pen added several new words to the shabby sign. No longer did it read, I am blind. Now the message read, it is springtime and I am blind. The cup was soon filled to overflowing. Perhaps the busy people were touched by Charles L. O'Donnell's exclamation, I have never been able to school my eyes against young April's blue surprise. To each, however, the coins were a poor substitute for the desired ability to actually restore sight. Each of us knows those who do not have sight. We also know many others who have their eyesight, but who walk in darkness at noonday. These in this latter group may never carry the usual white cane and carefully make their way to the sound of the familiar tap, tap, tap. They may not have a faithful seeing eye dog by their side, nor carry a sign about their neck, which reads, I am blind. But blind they surely are. Some have been blinded by anger, others by indifference, by revenge, by hate, by prejudice, by ignorance, by neglect of precious opportunities. Of such the Lord said, their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted, and I should heal them. Well might each lament, it is springtime. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been restored, and yet I am blind. Some, like the friend of Philip of old, call out, How can I find my way, except some man should guide me? Many years ago, while attending a state conference, 
I noticed that a counselor in the state presidency was blind. He functioned beautifully, performing his duties as though he had sight. It was a stormy night as we met in the stake office, situated on the second floor of the building. Suddenly, there was a loud clap of thunder. The lights in the building almost immediately went out. Instinctively, I reached out for our sightless leader, and I said, Here, take my arm, and I will help you down the stairway. <laughs> I'm certain he must have had a smile on his face as he responded, No, Brother Monson, give me your arm that I might help you. And he added, You are now in my territory. <laughs> the storm abated, the lights returned, but I shall never forget the trek down those stairs, guided by the man who was sightless, yet filled with light. Long ago, and at a place far distant, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. His disciples questioned the Master as to why this person was blind. Had he sinned, or had his parents sinned, causing him to have this affliction? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but the works of God should be made manifest in him. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Oh, a great dispute ensued among the Pharisees concerning this miracle. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man Jesus is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know that whereas I was blind, now I see. One thinks of the fisherman called Simon, better known to you and to me as Peter, chief among the apostles, doubting, disbelieving, impetuous Peter, in fulfillment of the Master's prophecy, indeed did deny him thrice. Amidst the pushing, the jeers, and the blows, the Lord in the agony of his humiliation, in the majesty of his silence, turned and looked upon Peter. As one chronologist described the change, it was enough. Peter knew no more danger. He feared no more death. He rushed into the night to meet the morning dawn. This broken-hearted penitent stood before the tribunal of his own conscience, and there his old life, his old shame, his old weakness, his old self, was doomed to that death of godly sorrow, which was to issue in a new and nobler birth. The Apostle Paul had a similar experience to that of Peter. From the day of his conversion until the day of his death, Paul urged men to put off the old man and to put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Simon the fisherman had become Peter the apostle. Saul the persecutor had become Paul the proselyter. The passage of time has not altered the capacity of the Redeemer 
to change men's lives. As he said to the dead Lazarus, so he says to you and to me, Come forth. Said President Harold B. Lee, Every soul who walks the earth, wherever he lives, in whatever nation he may have been born, no matter whether he be in riches or in poverty, had at birth an endowment of that first light, which is called the light of Christ, the Spirit of Truth, or the Spirit of God, that universal light of intelligence which every soul is blessed to have. Moroni spoke of that Spirit when he said, For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man that he may know good from evil. Wherefore I show unto you the way to judge. For everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. You and I know those who qualify for the Savior's blessing in accordance with this definition. Such was Walter Stover of Salt Lake City. Born in Germany, Walter embraced the gospel message and came to America. He established his own business. He gave freely of his time and of his means. Following World War II, Walter Stover was called to return to his native land. He directed the Church in that nation and blessed the lives of all whom he met and with whom he served. With his own funds, he constructed two beautiful chapels in Berlin, a city, a majestic city, that had been so devastated by the conflict. He planned a gathering in Dresden for all the members of the Church from that nation and then chartered a train to bring them from all around the land so they could meet, partake of the sacrament, bear witness of the goodness of God to them. At the funeral services for Walter Stover, his son-in-law, Thomas C. LeDuc, said of him, He had the ability to see Christ in every face he encountered and acted accordingly. The poet wrote, I met a stranger in the night whose lamp has ceased to shine. I paused and let him light his lamp from mine. A tempest sprang up later on and shook the world about. And when the wind was gone, my lamp was out. But back came to me the stranger. His lamp was glowing fine. He held the precious flame and lighted mine. Perhaps the moral of this poem is simply that if you want to give a light to others, you have to glow yourself. When the prophet Joseph Smith went into a grove of trees made sacred by what occurred there, he described the event. It was on the morning of a beautiful clear day, early in the spring of 1820. It was the first time in my life that I had made such an attempt, for amidst all my anxieties I had never as yet made the attempt to pray vocally. After enduring a harrowing experience, from an unseen power, Joseph continued, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. When the light rested upon me, 
I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto the, to me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Joseph listened. Joseph learned. On occasion, I will be asked, Brother Monson, if the Savior appeared to you, what questions would you ask of him? My reply is always the same. I would ask no question of him. Rather, I would listen. Late one evening, on a Pacific isle, a small boat slipped silently to its berth at the crude pier. Two Polynesian women helped Meli Mulipola from the boat and guided him to the well-worn pathway leading to the village road. The women marveled at the bright stars which twinkled in the midnight sky. The friendly moonlight guided them along their way. However, Meli Mulipola could not appreciate these delights of nature—the moon, the stars, the sky—for he was blind. His vision had been normal until that fateful day when, while working on a pineapple plantation, light turned suddenly to darkness and they became perpetual night. He had learned with the restoration of the gospel and the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. His life had been brought into compliance with these teachings. He and his loved ones had made this long voyage, having learned the one who held the priesthood of God was visiting among the islands. He sought a blessing on the hands of those who held the sacred priesthood. His wish was granted. Tears streamed from his sightless eyes and coursed down his brown cheeks, tumbling finally upon his native dress. He dropped to his knees and prayed, O God, Thou knowest I am blind. Thy servants have blessed me, that if it be Thy will, my sight may return. Whether in Thy wisdom I see light or whether I see darkness all the days of my life, I will be eternally grateful for the truth of Thy gospel, which I now see and which provides me the light of life. He arose to his feet, thanked us for providing the blessing, and disappeared into the dark of the night. Silently he came, silently he departed, but his presence I shall never forget. I reflected upon the message of the Master. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Today is a day of temple building. Never before have so many temples been erected and dedicated. President Gordon B. Hinckley, God's prophet on this earth, has a vision of the vital ordinances performed in such houses of the Lord. Temples will bless all who attend them and who sacrifice for their completion. The light of Christ will shine on all, even those who have gone beyond. President Joseph F. Smith, speaking of work for the dead, declared, Through our efforts in their behalf, their chains of bondage will fall from them, and the darkness surrounding them will clear away. 
that light may shine upon them. And they shall hear in the spirit world of the work that has been done for them by their children here, and will rejoice with you in your performance of these duties. The Apostle Paul urged, Be thou an example of the believers. And from James, Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. I close with the words of the poet Minnie Louise Haskins, who wrote, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than a light and safer than a known way. So I went forth, and finding the hand of God, trod gladly into the night. And he led me toward the hills and the breakings of the day in the lone east. On this Easter morning and always, may our light so shine that we glorify our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, whose name is the only name under heaven whereby we might be saved, that we may ever walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, is my humble prayer in His holy name. Amen. Now, my dear brethren, it is a tremendous honor and responsibility to speak to you. I pray the Lord will bless me. What a tremendous brotherhood this is, comprised of hundreds of thousands of men and boys who have been ordained to the priesthood of God. What a mighty concourse this would be if we were all to come together in one great gathering. It would astonish the world. There is nothing like it of which I am aware. You are the backbone of the Church, my brethren. From your ranks come the bishops and branch presidents, the district and state presidents, the area authority seventies, and all of the general authorities. You young men are the substance of a great missionary program whose influence is felt throughout the world. Altogether, you are men and boys who have taken on the whole armor of God to move forward His work in the earth. Whenever we gather in one of these meetings, I am sorry that we cannot accommodate all who wish to come. From the moment the doors of the tabernacle were opened tonight, there was a flood of young men and their fathers. Hopefully, the new hall will be finished a year from now, and we will be able to accomplish all, or accommodate all who wish to come. And to you, brethren, who are taking advantage of the broadcast and satellite transmission of these proceedings, we feel at one with you. I think, my brethren, that our Father in Heaven smiles down upon us. I think it must be of great comfort to Him to look upon the hundreds of thousands of men and boys who love Him, who carry in their hearts a testimony of Him and His beloved Son who give leadership and direction to His Church, 
who stand as heads of families where there is righteousness and where truth is taught and exemplified. We have become a great body of men, young and old. There is scarcely anything we cannot accomplish if we work unitedly together with one mind and one purpose and one heart. I hope that each of us is aware of the tremendous thing that has come to us with ordination of the priesthood. This is the authority of God in the earth. It comes from Him as a divine bestowal. It carries with it the power and the authority to govern in the affairs of the Church. It carries with it the power and the authority to bless in the name of the Lord, to lay hands upon the sick, and call down the powers of heaven. It is sacred and holy. It partakes of the divine. Its authority is expressed in mortality and reaches beyond the veil of death. I hope we are worthy of the priesthood we bear. I plead with you, every one of you, to conduct your lives in such a way as to be worthy of it. As we have been reminded, this is a season of great evil in the world. No one needs to be reminded of that. We are constantly exposed to the muck and filth of pornography, to salacious and evil behavior, totally be unbecoming anyone who holds the priesthood of God. It is a challenge to work in the, in the world and live above its filth. Dishonesty is rampant. It is manifest in cheating that goes on in schools, in the operation of clever schemes in businesses that rob and defraud. Temptations are everywhere about us. Unfortunately, some to succumb to these. Brethren, be strong. Rise above the evils of the world. We need not be prudish. We need not adopt a holier-than-thou attitude. We need only let our personal integrity, our sense of right and wrong and simple honesty, govern our actions. Let us live the gospel in our homes. Let there be an honest manifestation of love between husbands and wives, between children and their parents. Control the voice of anger. Be absolutely loyal one to another. Simply do what is right and let the consequence follow. So live that each morning you may kneel in prayer, seeking the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit as well as its protective power as you go about your work of the day. So live that each night before retiring you may come before the Lord in prayer without shame or embarrassment or the need to plead for forgiveness. I do not hesitate to say that God will bless you if you will do so. Someday you will grow old and look back upon your life you will be able to say, I lived with integrity. I cheated no one, not even myself. I reveled in the companionship of my wife, who is the mother of our children. I am proud of those children. I am grateful to God for His manifest blessings. If such can be your lot, 
I promise that when the shades of old age gather about you, there will be tears of gratitude in your eyes and the throbbing of a thankful heart beating in your breast. Now, some years ago, more than ten years ago, I spoke from this pulpit concerning the bishops of the Church. I wish to return briefly to that subject again tonight. I carry in my heart a deep appreciation for our bishops. I am profoundly grateful for the revelation of the Almighty under which this office was created and functions. As all of you are aware, last fall a terrible storm hit Central America. For six days and nights, Hurricane Mitch locked in over that area and particularly over Honduras. The winds blew ferociously and the rains fell without let-up. Rivers swelled and took with them houses that had been built along their banks. More than 200 bridges were washed out in Honduras, destroying means of travel. The soil from the highlands washed toward the sea in a deluge of filthy mud. Houses were filled to the tops of the windows. Yards and streets were filled. People fled in terror, leaving all behind them. One of our bishops secured a big truck and went about gathering his people, taking them to higher ground. When the truck could no longer get through, he somehow secured a boat. He was looking after his flock. I went down there to see what had happened and to give comfort where possible. I beheld a miracle. I witnessed in operation the simple and marvelously effective organization of this Church. Every member of this Church has a bishop or a branch president. I have only commendation for other relief efforts which came in from across the world, but I have unending admiration for the wonderful manner in which the Church operated. The bishops appealed to their state presidents who appealed to the area presidency who appealed to headquarters here in Salt Lake City. Within hours, great quantities of basic foodstuffs, medicine, and clothing were on their way from our storehouses. A warehouse was rented in San Pedro Sula in the area of the greatest damage. It was the bishops who marshaled their people to work shifts in the warehouse, putting into plastic bags enough food to take care of a family for a week, clothing to put on their backs, medicine to safeguard them against disease. Every bishop knew his own people. He, with his Relief Society president, knew their needs. These were not faceless strangers working as employees of government. They were friends, each a member of a ward family, small enough that they knew one another's needs. There was no argument, no, no greedy grasping for food and clothing. Everything was orderly. It was systematic. It was friendly. It was motivated by love and concern, and it was done quickly to meet an immediate need. It was the gospel at work in a quiet and magnificent manner. The waters finally subsided, but mud was left in a thick and ugly coating on everything. Nothing became more valuable than shovels and wheelbarrows. 
and together, again under the direction of the bishops, the mud was cleaned from the houses. We visited a meeting house on a Saturday. There were many people there, with a bishop, a loving father to his flock, giving direction. The pews, which had been floating in the water, were taken out and carefully cleaned. Mud was scraped from the walls and the floors. Then the mops came out and the polishing cloths. And before nightfall that Saturday evening, the building had been made ready for worship services on the Sabbath. I stand in humble gratitude and respect and admiration for the bishops of this Church. In the most dire of circumstances, I watched them in La Lima, Honduras. I spoke with them, shook their hands, loved them. How thankful I am for these men who, without regard for their own comfort, give of their time, of their wisdom, of their inspiration in presiding over our wards throughout the world. They receive no compensation other than the love of their people. There is no rest for them on the Sabbath, nor very much at other times. They are the ones closest to the people, best acquainted with their needs and circumstances. The requirements of their office are today as they were in the days of Paul, who wrote to Timothy, A bishop, then, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, good to, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, that is, not a bully or a violent person, not a brawler, not covetousness. In his letter to Titus, Paul adds that a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. <clears throat> All during the years of my childhood and youth, even until the time I was ordained an elder and came home from a mission, I had only one bishop. He was a remarkable man. He served for 25 years. We knew him and he knew us. We always addressed him as Bishop Duncan, and he always called us by our first names. We had great respect for him, an almost awesome respect, but we had no fear of him. We knew that he was our friend. His was a very large ward, and how very well he served his people. I spoke at his funeral. Next to my own father, he probably had the greatest influence on my young life. How grateful I am for him! Since then, I have had a number of bishops. Without exception, every one of them has been a dedicated and inspired leader. Now let me say a few words directly to the bishops who are with us this night. And much of what I say to you might be echoed to the State Presidents and others in similar callings. I hope you know that I carry in my heart a great feeling of love for you. I know that your people love you. Tremendous is your trust. In calling you, we have placed in you our total confidence. We expect you to stand as the presiding High Priest of the Ward, a counselor to the people, 
a defender and helper of those in trouble, a comfort to those in sorrow, a supplier to those in need. We expect you to stand as a guardian and protector of the doctrine that is taught in your ward, of the quality of the teaching, of the filling of the many offices which are necessary. Your personal behavior must be impeccable. You must be a man of integrity above reproach of any kind. Your example will set the tone for the direction your people follow. You must be fearless in denouncing evil, willing to take a stand for the right, uncompromising in your defense of truth. While all of this requires firmness, it must be done with kindness and love. You are the father of the ward and the guardian of your people. You must reach out to them in their times of sorrow and sickness and distress. You stand as president of the Aaronic Priesthood, and with your counselors must give leadership to the deacons and the teachers and the priests to see that they grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You are a, you are a husband to your wife, her beloved companion, her protector and provider. You are a father to your children and must nurture them with love and teach them with appreciation. You may expect that the adversary will work on you. You of all men must exercise self-discipline, standing far apart from sin and evil of any kind in your life. You must shun pornography, shut off the television set when it carries salacious entertainment. Be pure in thought and deed. You cannot use your office to further your business interests among your people, lest some accuse you of benefiting from your service as bishop. You stand as a common judge in Israel. This is almost a terrifying responsibility. In some instances, you must determine even the eligibility of your people to be members of the Church. You must determine their worthiness to receive baptism, their worthiness to be ordained to the Aaronic priesthood, their eligibility to serve missions, and, above all, their qualifications to enter the house of the Lord and partake of the blessings there to be had. You are to see that none goes hungry or without clothing or shelter. You must know the circumstances of all over whom you preside. You must be a comforter and a guide to your people. Your door must be ever open to any cries of distress. Your back must be strong in sharing their burdens. You must reach out in love, even to the wrongdoer. My brethren, I invoke the blessings of the Almighty upon you in the great responsibility which you carry. May God bless you with health and strength. May he touch your mind with wisdom and understanding, with appreciation and love. May the interests of your people be the dominant concern of your life without sacrificing the demands of your employment or the proper attention given your family. I thank the Lord for each of you. 
I love you for what you do. I pray for you, every one of you, wherever you may be. I plead with you to shield yourselves from the darts of the adversary. I counsel you to put on the whole armor of God. May the blessings of heaven come down upon your wives and your children. Someday you will be released. That will be a day of sadness. The memories of your people will remain throughout your life. They will sanctify your days and bring peace and rest and gladness. God bless you, my beloved brethren. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I'm honored tonight to be with this vast army of priesthood bearers who daily respond to calls to serve, who teach diligently as the Lord has commanded, and who labor mightily to bring a correction course to a specific challenge which the Church must meet, namely, to live in the world without being of the world. In this day in which we live, the floodwaters of immorality, irresponsibility, and dishonesty lap at the very moorings of our individual lives. If we do not safeguard those moorings, if we do not have deeply entrenched foundations to withstand such eroding influences, we are going to experience difficulty. One of the greatest safeguards we have in the Church is a strong, firm, committed, dedicated, and testifying Melchizedek priesthood base. In my office, I have two small earthen containers. One is filled with water I retrieve from the Dead Sea. The other contains water from the Sea of Galilee. Occasionally, I will shake one of the bottles to ensure that the water has not diminished. When I follow this practice, my mind turns to these two different bodies of water. The Dead Sea is void of life. The Sea of Galilee is filled with life and with memories of the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is another body of water found throughout the Church today. I speak of the pool of prospective elders in each ward and each stake. Picture in your mind a river of water gushing into the pool. Then consider a trickle of water emerging from that stagnated pool, a trickle which represents those going forward into the Melchizedek priesthood. The pool of prospective elders is becoming larger and wider and deeper, more rapidly than any of us can fully appreciate. It is essential, even critical, that we study the Aaronic priesthood pathway since far too many boys falter, stumble, then fall without advancing into the quorums of the Melchizedek priesthood, thereby eroding the active priesthood base of the Church and curtailing the activity of loving wives and precious children. What can we as leaders do to reverse this trend? The place to begin is at the headwaters of the Aaronic priesthood stream. There is an ancient proverb which purports to correctly determine the sanity of an individual. 
A person is shown a stream of water flowing into a stagnant pond. He is given a bucket and asked to commence to drain the pond. If he first takes steps to effectively dam the inflow to the pond, he is adjudged sane. If, on the other hand, he ignores the inflow and tries to empty the pond bucket by bucket, he is designated as insane. The bishop, by revelation, is the president of the Aaronic priesthood and is president of the priest quorum in his ward. He cannot delegate these God-given responsibilities. However, he can place accountability with those called as quorum advisors, men who can touch the lives of boys, the bishop's counselors, other ward officers and teachers, and particularly the fathers and the mothers of our young men can be of immeasurable help. Also very effective can be the service rendered by ironic priesthood quorum presidencies. This then is our goal, to save every young man, thereby assuring a worthy husband for each of our young women, strong Melchizedek priesthood quorums, and a missionary force trained and capable of accomplishing what the Lord expects. A wise first step is to guide each deacon to a spiritual awareness of the sacredness of his ordained calling. In one ward, this lesson was effectively taught pertaining to the collection of fast offerings. On fast day, the ward members were visited by deacons and teachers so that each family could make a contribution. The deacons were a bit disgruntled, having to arise earlier than usual to fulfill this assignment. The inspiration came for the bishopric to take a busload of the deacons and teachers to Welfare Square here in Salt Lake City. Here they saw needy children receiving new shoes and other items of clothing. Here they witnessed empty baskets being filled with groceries. There was no money exchanged. One brief comment was made. Young men, this is what the money you collect on fast day provides even food, clothing, and shelter. The ironic priesthood young men smiled more, stepped higher, and served with a willing mind in the filling of their assignments. A question. Is every ordained teacher given the assignment to home teach? What an opportunity to prepare for a mission. What a privilege to learn the discipline of duty a boy will automatically turn from concern for self when he's assigned to watch over others. And what of the priests? These young men have the opportunity to bless the sacrament, to continue their home teaching duties, and to participate in the sacred ordinance of baptism. I remember as a deacon watching the priests as they would officiate at the sacrament table. One priest by the name of Barry had a lovely voice and would read the sacrament prayers with clear diction as though he were competing in a speech contest. The other members of the ward, particularly the older sisters, would compliment him on his golden voice. I think he became a bit proud. Jack, another priest in the ward, was hearing impaired, which caused his speech to be unnatural in its sound. We deacons would twitter at times when Jack would bless the emblems. 
How we dared to do so is beyond me. Poor Jack had hands like a bear and could have crushed any one of us. <laughs> On one occasion, Barry with the beautiful voice and Jack with the awkward delivery were assigned together at the sacrament table. The hymn was sung. The two priests broke the bread. Barry knelt to pray, and we closed our eyes. But nothing happened. Soon we deacons opened our eyes to see what was causing the delay. I shall ever remember the picture of Barry frantically searching the table for the little white card on which were printed the sacrament prayers. It was nowhere to be found. What to do? Barry's face turned pink and then crimson as the congregation began to look in his direction. Then Jack, with that bear-like hand, reached up and gently tugged Barry back onto the bench. He himself then knelt on the little footstool and began to pray, O God, the Eternal Father, we ask Thee in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it. He continued the prayer, and the bread was passed. Jack also blessed the water, and it was passed. What respect we deacons gained that day for Jack, who, though handicapped in speech, had memorized the sacred prayers. Barry, too, had a new appreciation for Jack. A lasting bond of friendship had been established. Beyond the influence of the bishopric and the ironic priesthood quorum advisors is the impact of the home. Help of parents, when enlisted wisely, can frequently make the difference between success and failure. A survey we conducted recently reveals that the influence of the home is a dominant factor in determining missionary service and temple marriage. I know in my experience of only three wards with a full complement of 48 priests. These wards were presided over by Joseph B. Worthland, Alfred B. Smith, and Alvin R. Dyer. Almost without exception, each young man filled a mission and married in the temple. One of the keys to their success was to call to service as ironic priesthood advisors men who were models for the young men to follow. An ideal model is a returned missionary, fresh from his mission and filled with testimony, where a young ironic priesthood holder can say, That's the man I want to follow. As we dam off that inflow of ironic priesthood streaming into the pool of prospective elders, we will solve more problems than we realize. We will ensure that every young man will more likely than not go on a mission and will marry in the temple. Then there will not be that disproportionate number of worthy young women with few worthy young men to select as an eternal companion. We're not talking about a boy. We're talking about husbands, fathers, grandfathers, patriarchs to their own families. Let's put a solid foundation beneath our ironic priesthood, young men. Let us not overlook the adult converts to the Church who receive the ironic priesthood but who are not ordained to the office of elder in a timely fashion. 
They then join the brethren who remain in that stagnant pool of inactivity. There are those wards and stakes which have rescued vast numbers of fine men who had felt trapped by no outlet in the pool. In traveling the Church, I kept records of those units which had caught the vision of this rescue effort. All of them had similar experiences. They learned that the rescue work is best done one-on-one and at the ward level. The bishop has to be involved, for isn't he the president of the Aaronic priesthood as well as the presiding high priest of his ward? Worthy and well-prepared instructors must be called to help in such a critical effort. Brethren, prayerfully analyze your situation. And then call to the colors those whom the Lord has prepared to go forth to serve and to save. Remember, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. Ponder the joy that comes to a wife and children when Daddy sees the light, mends his ways, and follows in the footsteps of Jesus Christ our Lord. An example of true love and inspired teaching was found in the life of the late James Collier, who had, through his personal efforts, reactivated a large number of brethren in Bountiful, Utah. I was invited by Brother Collier to address those who had now been ordained elders and who, with their wives and families, had been to the Salt Lake Temple to receive those eternal covenants and blessings for which they had so earnestly strived. At the banquet honoring this achievement, I could see and I could feel the love that Jim had for those whom he had taught and rescued and the love they had for him. Unfortunately, Jim Collier at that time was afflicted with a terminal illness and had to persuade the doctors to allow him to leave the hospital to attend this final night of recognition. As Jim stood at the pulpit, a large smile came over his face. With emotion, he expressed his love to the group. There wasn't a dry eye to be found. Brother Collier quipped, Everyone wants to go to the celestial kingdom, but no one wants to die to get there. Then, lowering his voice, Jim continued, I'm prepared to go, and I will be there waiting on the other side to greet each of you, my beloved friends. Jim returned to the hospital. His funeral service was held just a short time later. In fulfilling our responsibility to those who bear the ironic priesthood, both the youth and the prospective elders, I urge that we remember there is no need for us to walk alone. We can look up and reach out for divine help. The recognition of a power higher than man does not in any sense debase him. If in his faith he ascribes beneficence and high purpose to the power which is superior to himself, he envisions a higher destiny and nobler attributes for his kind and is stimulated and encouraged in the struggle of existence. He must seek, believing, praying, and hoping that he will find. No such sincere, prayerful effort will go unrequited. That is the very constitution of the philosophy of faith. So taught President Stephen L. Richards. 
A line from the delightful play, The King and I, gives us encouragement in our labors. The king of Siam lay dying. With him is Anna, his English tutor, whose son asks her the question, Was he as good as he could have been? Anna answers wistfully, I don't think any man has ever been as good as he could have been, but this one really tried. The prophet Joseph declared, Happiness is the object and design of our existence and will be the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it. And this path is virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping all the commandments of God. Let us walk these clearly defined paths. To help us do so, we can follow the shortest sermon in the world. It can be found on a common traffic sign. It reads, Keep Right. This advice was found and followed by Joe, who had been asked to get up at 6 in the morning and drive a crippled child 50 miles to a hospital. He didn't want to do it, but he didn't know how to say no. A woman carried the child out to the car and set him next to the driver's seat, mumbling thanks through her tears. Joe said everything would be all right and drove off quickly. After a mile or so, the child inquired shyly, uh, you're, you're God, aren't you? I'm afraid not, little fellow, replied Joe. I thought you uh, must be God, said the child. I heard Mother praying next to my bed and asking God to help me get to the hospital so I could get well and play with the other boys. Do you work for God? Sometimes, I guess, said Joe, but not regularly. <laughs> and then quietly uttered, I think I'm going to work for him a lot more from now on. My brethren, will you? Will I? Will we? I pray humbly yet earnestly that we will. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. My beloved brethren, I come to this pulpit this evening with profound feelings of love and respect for your faithful obedience in obedience in honoring the priesthood you bear. I have prayed for guidance in what I should say because I wish to raise a warning voice. In today's society, the difference between right and wrong is being obscured by loud, seductive voices calling for no restraints in human conduct. They advocate absolute freedom without regard to consequences. I state unequivocally that such behavior is the high road to personal destruction. Tonight I speak to the priesthood of this Church, and particularly to the young men of the Aaronic Priesthood, about how to become really free. Obedience leads to true freedom. The more we obey revealed truth, the more we become liberated. President David O. McKay spoke about his horse, Dandy, who wanted complete freedom and no restraints. President McKay said, 
Under the saddle, he was as willing, responsive, and cooperative as a horse could be. But Dandy resented restraint. He was ill-contented when tied and would nibble at the tie rope until he was free. He would not run away. He just wanted to be free. Thinking other horses felt the same, he would proceed to untie their ropes. His curiosity and desire to explore the neighborhood led him and me into trouble. Once on the highway, he was hit by an automobile. Recovering from that and still impelled with a feeling of wanderlust, he inspected the fence throughout the entire boundary. He even found the gates wired. One day, however, somebody left the gate unwired. Detecting this, Dandy unlatched it and took another horse and with him, and together they went to an old house used for storage. Dandy's curiosity prompted him to push open the door. There was a sack of grain. What a find! Yes, and what a tragedy. The grain was bait for rodents. In a few minutes, Dandy and the other horse were in spasmodic pain, and shortly afterwards, both were dead. President McKay continued, How like Dandy are many of our youth. They are impulsive, full of life, full of curiosity. They, too, are restive under restraint. But if they are kept busy, guided carefully and rightly, they prove to be responsive and capable. But if left unguided, they all too frequently violate the principles of right, which often lead to snares of evil, disaster, and even death. End of quote. Being bridled or heeding obediently to restraint is necessary for our personal growth and progression. Recently, a national nationally broadcast program talked about wild horses that are being tamed by prisoners. As the prisoners form friendships with the horses, they learned about patience, controlling tempers, respect for others, and the value of working within the system. As they watched the horses learn to be obedient to their commands, they realized how they could have avoided the terrible mistakes that led them in prison. I add that obedience to righteous principles would have offered them freedom from social diseases, shame, degradation, and feelings of guilt. Like the horses, they could still learn, progress, and achieve. We hear many persuasive voices demanding freedom from restrictions, particularly moral restraints. However, we learn from the history of the earth that any successful society has had boundaries. Consider the earth itself. It was formed out of matter and in the beginning was empty, desolate, and dark. Then came the order as God commanded that the light should be divided from the darkness. God's command was obeyed and the earth had its first day followed by its first night. Then God ordered the creation of the atmosphere. He organized the sun, the moon, and the stars to shine in their appropriate times and seasons. After a series of commands and obedience to commands, the earth not only became habitable but beautiful. 
Brother Jake Garn, former United States Senator, traveled into space with a team of American astronauts a few years ago, recalling the view they had of the enormity of the heavens from the space shuttle Discovery. He commented that to order orbit the Earth is to recognize that we are all children of God and that the Earth operates in obedience to God's laws. He spoke also of the magnificent beauty of the Earth from space and that it is absolutely breathtaking. This Earth on which we dwell is an individual planet occupying a unique place in space, but it is also part of our solar system, an orderly system with eight other planets, asteroids, comets, and other celestial bodies that orbit the sun. Just as the earth is a planet in its own right, so each of us is an individual in our own sphere of habitation. We are individuals, but we live in families and communities where order provides a system of harmony that hinges on obedience to principles. Just as order gave life and beauty to the earth when it was dark and void, so it does to us. Obedience helps us develop the full potential our Heavenly Father desires for us in becoming celestial beings worthy someday to live in His presence. Now, brethren, another element of freedom is trust. Almost 60 years ago, when I was going on my first mission, President McKay taught us missionaries a great truth. Without a word... He walked over to the blackboard, picked up a piece of chalk, and wrote, It is better to be trusted than to be loved. I have pondered that statement and have seen some fine examples of it. I will relate one example from the scriptures. Joseph, the son of Jacob and Rachel, was sold into slavery in Egypt. Because of treachery in the house of Potiphar, Joseph went to prison. Pharaoh had two troubling dreams. Hearing of Joseph's discernment from the captain of the prison guard, he sent for him to interpret the dreams. Joseph told him through inspiration that seven years of plenty would be followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh not only recognized his true interpretation, but he trusted Joseph and appointed him to be second only to Pharaoh in power. The years passed and the famine came. In time, Joseph rescued all of his brothers and his father from starvation. Because he earned the implicit trust of those who were over him, Joseph enjoyed a great amount of freedom. Like Joseph, you too can be trusted by others, but trust must be earned. As in all things, the Savior is our pattern. The Apostle Paul wrote, Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience. In our own finite way, we too can learn obedience even as Christ did. As young children, we learn respect for authority as we obey our parents, thus earning their trust. If we don't obey, we are like the boy Jack, whose father said to him, Every time you disobey, I get another gray hair. Wow, Dad, Jack answered. 
So it was you who gave Grandpa all his gray hair. Hopefully in the schoolroom we learn other lessons of discipline that help us to get along with others. When obedience becomes our goal, it is no longer an irritation. Instead of a stumbling block, it becomes a building block. Obedience to the word of wisdom keeps us from addictions, so we do not become slaves to alcohol, drugs, or tobacco. Our bodies will be healthy and our minds clear because of the promise associated with this principle is that all saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, walking in obedience to the commandment, shall receive health in their navel and marrow to their bones. An additional promise in this revelation says, we shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures. So, By obedience, we also gain knowledge. As the Savior said, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. Obedience brings peace in decision-making. If we have firmly made up our minds to follow the commandments, we will not have to re-decide the path to take when temptation comes our way. This is how obedience brings spiritual safety. Brethren, another aspect of obedience is our obedience to spiritual promptings. This, too, can be liberating. How many times have we felt regret for ignoring a prompting from a higher source? Ephraim Hanks is a remarkable example of young man's obedience to spiritual promptings. In the fall of 1856, After he had gone to bed, he heard a voice say to him, The handcart people are in trouble, and you are wanted. Will you go help them? Without any hesitation, he answered, Yes, I will go if I am called. He rode quickly from Draper to Salt Lake City. As he arrived, he heard the call for volunteers to help the last handcart companies come into the valley. Eve jumped up and said, I'm ready now. He was just as good as his word, leaving at once and alone. A terrific storm broke as he took his wagon eastward over the mountains. It lasted three days, and the snow was so deep that it was impossible to move the wagons through it. So Eve decided he would go on horseback. He took two horses, one to ride and one to back and picked his way carefully through the snow to the mountains. Dusk came as he made his lonely camp at South Pass. He was about to lie down. He thought about the hungry saints and instinctively asked the Lord to send him a buffalo. As he opened his eyes at the end of his prayer, he was startled at the sight of a buffalo standing barely 50 yards away. He took aim and one shot sent the animal rolling down into the hollow where he was encamped. Early next morning, he took the two horses and the buffalo meat and reached Ice Spring Bench. There he shot another buffalo, and even though it was rare to find buffalo in this area this late in the season, after he had cut the meat into long strips, he loaded up his horses and resumed his journey. Now I quote from East's own narrative. 
I think the sun was about an hour high in the west when I spied something in the distance that looked like a black streak in the snow. As I got near it, I perceived it moved, and then I was satisfied that this was a long-looked-for handcart company led by Captain Edward Martin. When they saw me coming, they hailed me with joy inexpressible, and they further beheld the supply of fresh meat I had brought into camp. Their gratitude knew no bounds. Flocking around me, they, one would say, Oh, please give me a small piece of meat. Another would exclaim, My poor children are starving. Do give me a little. And the children with tears in their eyes would call out, Give me some. Give me some. Five minutes later, both my horses had been released of their extra burden. The meat was all gone, and the next few hours found people in the camp busily engaged in cooking and eating it with thankful hearts. Close quote. Certainly, Ephraim Hanks' obedience to spiritual promptings led him to become a vanguard hero as he forged ahead alone through that devastating winter weather to preserve many pioneer lives because he listened to the whisperings of the Spirit and obeyed the counsel of the brethren. Eve became a notable liberating force in the lives of those desperate, struggling pioneers. Freedom and liberty are precious gifts that come to us when we are obedient to the laws of God and the whisperings of the Spirit. If we are to avoid destruction, which was the fate of President McKay's horse Dandy and his companion, fences or guardrails must be built beyond which we cannot go. The fences which we must stay within are the principles of revealed truth. Obedience to them makes us truly free to reach the potential and the glory which our Heavenly Father has in store for us. I testify you to you of the importance of obedience. I also wish to testify to you, my brethren, of the prophetic mantle which rests upon President Hinckley, which enables him to receive the inspiration and guidance from the head of this Church, the Lord and Savior, which I do in his sacred name, even Jesus Christ. Amen.